Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations, their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. This episode features Dr. Arif Kamal, the Chief Patient Officer at the American Cancer Society, who gave the keynote address at the recent ACS Cancer Programs Conference in Atlanta. Dr. Kamal reflects on how multiple disciplines can come together to care for patients across the continuum of care, from prevention through survivorship. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program. Good morning. It's uh, great to be with you. I'm going to do this in a more relaxed way, I think. I think you guys all look pretty relaxed to me, too, so I think this will work. Um, So what does it mean to be part of a cancer team? Let me just give you my background. I'm a medical oncologist and palliative care physician at Duke University and took the role as chief patient officer at ACS about uh, a year ago. We're the other ACS. And though we uh, have a lot of footprint in Atlanta, actually we're pretty much distributed across the country. And in terms of um, the work that we do, it's really working very closely uh, with y'all to do uh, improved quality of cancer care delivery across the country and across the cancer continuum. And so what you'll hear me talk a little bit about is why it's important to function as a team and to work across the continuum from prevention through survivorship and end of life care as well. So let's, uh, let's get started here a little bit. So as I mentioned, I, I'm not only a medical oncologist, but I'm also a dad, I'm a husband. Um, I am the bereaved son of a mother who died of breast cancer. I am a colleague to several really wonderful people that work with me on my team, and a person who's very committed to the improvement of quality of cancer care delivery. Having been the physician quality officer at Duke for the last decade before taking this role, to me, the what you guys do, what we pay attention to very deliberately, intentionally, is the critical uh, success factor to where we've been as, as a country and improved over the last three decades. Um, so let me, let me talk about a few salient issues that are actually important for today. Uh, uh, the American Cancer Society, we just published our colorectal cancer facts and figures yesterday morning, which hit with quite a big splash because it demonstrates mixed news that I think all of you uh, it will resonate with. So first, we showed that the overall uh, colorectal cancer incidence of all populations is going down, albeit that is uh, mitigated by the fact that the incidence rate for younger folks is going up. And in particular, we were pointing out that there's not only lifestyle issues, but also low rates of colon cancer screening happening in people who are under the age of 55, such that the incidence rate is going up per year by 2% in people under 55, which is pretty remarkable if you think about that compounded over five or 10 years. That's, That's quite a bit, and it's in a population younger than I think we had historically thought. So how do we solve a problem like that, particularly where the interventions are generally known in terms of what you would do to do colon cancer screening, that the modalities are multiple, meaning that people can do them in home and do them in facilities, that payment generally is a problem that through a lot of hard work has been 
mostly solved, not completely solved because of the Affordable Care Act and work that's been done at Medicaid levels uh, to make sure that there's access to screening. But then still we find the complexities that still exist, right? Because even then we find that people under the age of 50 have a colon cancer screening rate of only 20%, despite the guidelines having changed in 2018. And so we see there are complexities related to diffusion of innovation, about continued access issues, continued payment issues, continued attitudinal and visibility and awareness issues, and by definition, a complex problem that requires an entire team of people to think through from a public health perspective at the 30,000 foot view, all the way down to the individual one-on-one -on -one perspective as I was in clinic yesterday at the three foot level view, right? Where you're sitting uh, across from another person and trying to get them to think about something that maybe is, is not top of mind inherently. So let me introduce you first to the American Cancer Society because I think our organizations are inextricably linked in a lot of different ways and it's good to kind of give you um, a little bit of our update in terms of what we're doing as an organization. So as everyone knows, the uh, President Biden reignited the cancer moonshot um, uh, about a year ago and so we fell in behind as, as you guys have too to really have this focused effort on how do we improve disparities in cancer care delivery. Because as we know, even though mortality rates for cancer overall have gone down by 33% since 1991, those benefits are not equally distributed across the country based on demographic background, rural background, et cetera. And as my good colleague, uh, Dr. Robert Wynn likes to say, it is a lot about a person's ZNA uh, maybe even more than their DNA. And as we understand in cancer, as in many chronic illnesses and serious illnesses, that there is biology at play for sure, but there's much more than that that actually predicts outcomes. So for us, we've, we've set forward to end cancer as we know it for everyone with the emphasis on those last two words, this idea that we really have to get to a place where we are driving social justice and cancer care delivery so that people aren't facing those barriers, for example, accessing colonoscopies. They're not having delays in time from you know, the moment of an abnormal biopsy to, to definitive diagnosis to the beginning of treatment, for example. And we do that at the American Cancer Society through a tripartite mission that is patient support, which I and my team lead our discovery group. We've invested about $4 billion in cancer research since 1991. Uh, and our advocacy arm, ACS CAN, which does you know, a lot of really groundbreaking work to make sure that we're really solving access issues so that it's not just about innovation. Um, just to date myself a little bit, I finished oncology fellowship at Duke at a, 10 years ago or so, and I wrote an editorial in ASCO Post about sort of what's happened since then. And I'm a, I'm a breast medical oncologist and palliative care physician, as I said, but I try to keep tabs on you know, kind of what's happening in, across all of oncology. And I counted manually about, over the last decade, about 300 uh, new drugs, indications, or black box warnings, things that are sort of critical things that clinicians should know about um, that have happened from FDA approvals over the last decade. That's 30 per year, right? And that's about three, two to three per month. And if you imagine then the cognitive burden that comes along with trying to keep up with innovation is that it's both fantastic, right? Fantastic that we have new treatments now compared to five or 10 years ago. And at the same time, what it does is it increases the complexity of the delivery because it doesn't mean that a new thing is easier to give, easier to access, or easier to understand if you're a patient or caregiver, right? And so it increases that complexity. 
The other thing I'll add about that complexity, right, and why teams are important is because we cannot, as smart as we are in 2023 with you know, eight different first-line regimens for breast cancer, for example, from a chemotherapy perspective, we cannot guarantee an outcome to a person we're talking to at the three-foot level. And what we've done is increase the uncertainty about predictability as much as we would like to say that pdl one expression, for example, is, is going to guarantee something in particular. All of us had an experience or you reviewed a chart where someone had some 99% expression of something and didn't respond to that thing, regardless of what the Super Bowl commercial might have said. And that makes the job hard, right? Because you're talking about innovation and you're talking about uncertainty at the same time time and holding both things at the same time is frankly a skill, a skill that we all have to practice in and work on and something that I've found as an oncologist one of the harder things to do because it's really relatively easy to talk about here's this new great thing, this new great thing, blah 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 and then the patient or the caregiver looks you in the eye and says so it's going to work for me, right Dr. Kamal? And then there's that pregnant pause that happens, right? And you're like, well, and then you know, you're kind of, well, you know, we hope so, and right. And that's where we are today in 2023. Lots of hope and at the same time uncertainty. So this is that personified in one photo. Um, there was a, a, a documentary filmmaker that was making a documentary called Consider the Conversation. And it was about advanced care planning. They were very kind to come to Duke to do some of their filming. And they spent some time with me in my oncology palliative care clinic. Um, and this is, you know, uh, all part of the documentary, so it's all public record. But this is a patient that I took care of with advanced lung cancer, this wife who was on dialysis. And so there was a lot of complexity involved. And I think what we're all really setting out to do is to reduce that complexity as much as we can, to ease those burdens, and to be present even when problems are not easily solvable. And I think that presence is a lot of what people look for from us in whatever role we play in, in a cancer organization. And so I mentioned that the patient support pillar is what I lead with my team. And our overarching goal is to provide expert level, person-centric assistance to solve important problems across the cancer continuum. And I think that for all of us, we're actually waking up every morning thinking about that. Certainly at ACS, uh, we're doing that as well. And we think about the constituencies not only being, meaning the unit of change that we are after, is not just people at risk for cancer, persons who are going through that journey, but their family caregivers, the healthcare professionals who are part of that journey and intimately involved from, from the beginning to those moments uh, that are very tough that we face and the, and the communities that people live with as well. I mentioned that I am uh, a palliative care and hospice doc and uh, did my training at the Mayo Clinic at, 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 as one of the first fellows and it was a time where it was really important to me as a, as a bereaved son to learn more about that space and to understand what it means to both uh, uh, hope for the best and prepare for the rest. And again, holding two things simultaneously like that can be difficult. And to express those concerns while maintaining uh, hope can, can also be um, both important but complex as well. And so when people say, well, gosh, I bet what you do is really hard, I say, well, it is on particular days. It's also very rewarding to talk to people in, in moments of uncertainty to try to guide them through it as much as I can. It's what I did in clinic all day yesterday. Um, 
but also to remind people that hope, right, the concept of hope is not something actually we as clinicians or registrars or others can actually take away from a person, right? So people say, well, doesn't palliative care, when you have these conversations, having these moments, doesn't that sort of take something away? And I was like, well, you should, you should join me for a clinical encounter. I'll show you exactly how this goes. We don't actually have the power to take that away from people. I'll just be very clear. What we have the power to do is actually, is actually be reminders of the fact that hope, hope itself, is a dynamic construct. And what I mean by that is that when I was growing up in a small town in Missouri at 15 and a half, what I hoped for was to actually parallel park correctly in front of the DMV examiner. And so I was so nervous waking up, right? And I was like, oh my gosh, this is the only thing I hope for for today. And it was, it was my birthday, which apparently people don't do that anymore now. I don't think generations now wake up on their birthday to go to get their driver's license, but I grew up in the generation that that's what we did. Absolutely, that's what we did. And so there, and I was like, and I grew up in a small town, and I never had to parallel park, because you didn't. I was like, oh my gosh. Anyways, that's what I was hopeful for. And then as I went into college, and you met this wonderful woman at, at age 23 and hoped that she would say yes when I asked her to marry me, is that this idea is that hope changes over time. And what we hope for, based on the stage of where we are in life or with chronic illness, is also different, and that's okay and expected. And so when I talk to patients who are actively dying with, let's say, hours or days to live, and I, as a personal philosophy, as a clinician, I, I don't believe people should die alone if that's not their preference. And so I've been at the bedside of, of dozens of patients in my training and, and in my attending career to, to be there so that they're not alone, is that in that moment there is still hope, the hope to be symptom-free, right? The hope for um, whatever peaceful transition that person is hoping for, the hope to maybe mend fences, right, or reduce conflict, or to, you know, be together with people that oftentimes I find, you know, families are complex, right? Relationships are complex, and oftentimes in those moments, there are opportunities for people to get back together, and it's wonderful to see it. And as we think about this problem solving, the reason why teams are important is that we all have uh, particular ways we look at the world, and we have blind spots as well. I have, I have several blind spots, and importantly, what's helpful is when you have other people around you to help point those out, and I'll talk a little bit about that. So what we're doing at the American Cancer Society, particularly within patient support, is to bring services across the cancer continuum. And I think this was really important because in, I think in many ways as I've gone across the country and asked people about, about ACS, our ACS, is that you know, I asked them, what is your perception of the organization of the American Cancer Society? And oftentimes what I heard is around public health and prevention and early detection, super important. And as I mentioned, you can hold two things at the same time, which may end up being the theme of this talk, is that you can really both be a really fantastic public health organization as we are, but also pivot to be focused on the, the prospect of diagnosis onwards through bereavement and end-of-life care or survivorship. And what we've done is de deliberately focused on those seven areas within ACS so that we are being able to walk alongside people from you know, you know, being at risk for all the way through whatever that, that journey is for them and that we are relevant and helpful along that way. Um, we do that in several different ways, so uh, I'll just sort of 
introduce you, many of you may know already, we've got some key signature programs, including, as I mentioned, our research, our um, guidelines, and our uh, sc uh, screening um, guidance and recommendations, our ride, uh, road to recovery program, um, which gives about 60,000 or so rides per year to cancer patients who are trying to get to a treatment center, and we use volunteers to help people get those rides to those places. We have our 1-800 number, which is our contact center. We get about a quarter million calls per year. Um, oftentimes that 2 a.m., like, can you look at my pathology report with me type of question, because people, and it's the common question I ask my patients in clinic is, what, what keeps you from sleeping at night? Because I, as a healthcare professional, want to know that, one, to be compassionate to it, and at minimum be present for, present for it if I can't fix um, that area of distress. And so we are, have peer-to-peer -peer support through our online platforms and also through the work that I'm gonna talk about a little bit in some peer-to-peer -peer navigation. Uh, and then we provide lots of lodging. In fact, last year we provided 350,000 nights of free lodging to cancer patients across the country, both through our 30 and almost 31 Hope Lodges. Our new one's gonna open in Oklahoma City here uh, in about two weeks. Uh, and through our partnerships with uh, hotel partners so that we can do uh, free stays throughout the country. So this is the problem solving, particularly with the social determinants of health lens that we've been after. And I'm very proud to say that we've been in many rooms in this country, uh, including in the White House as part of the Cancer Moonshot Reignition. And you know, in addition to 50.8 million lives touched, we have 1.5 million lives directly touched through patient programs and services. But let me tell you, that doesn't happen because of a single person's vision or a single person's book of work. That is actually the team that makes it happen. And so we have this very distributed workforce of nearly uh, 165 professionals across our regions who have very close relationships, right, with cancer uh, committees and with cancer centers, but also FQHCs and primary care practices and integrated health systems um, so that we can follow people along that journey, right, from living, right, their normal life to something happened to now I need support, right? And that's where we want to be relevant and, and critical across that. I'll just point out sort of some of these numbers. I think that we are continuing to work on uh, our ability to be more bilingual, to be more relevant to special populations across the country, and that's an area of focus for us. Let me point out data. I think all of you have seen Amity and Jamal's great work that gets published every year. Let me point out where, where I think the opportunities really exist. You know, one, we're starting to see areas where there's not as much conversation happening in the country, but more is needing to happen, particularly with our urologic colleagues in prostate cancer and bladder cancer as we're starting to see some shifts there. We're starting to see some movement, particularly in age shifts among several cancers. I mentioned colorectal cancer, but also breast, uh, brain tumors, and leukemia. We're starting to see some age shifts there. With colorectal cancer, we actually see a stage shift occurring as well, where now 60% of all newly diagnosed colorectal cancer are actually advanced stage, whereas a decade ago it was 50%, right, which is moving in the wrong direction. And that highlights, again, the complexity that exists. And for those of you, I think all of you who are quality improvement professionals, you really embrace this idea that if the solution was easy, we probably would have gotten to it already, right? That really quality improvement is embracing an agnosticism to the solution from the very beginning and a deep appreciation for the complexity that actually exists, right? That um, when, I, when I train folks in, in QI and, and coach people around the country in QI, 
you know, we, we really have to get to a place of humility, right? All of us, including myself, because I can jump to conclusions like the best of them, okay? So that we get to a place where we say, if the answer was easy, we probably would have thought of it. So let's start by saying the answer is probably more complex than all of us realize right now in our first meeting, and that moving forward, we have to work together. Let me talk about quality improvement. I think from our lens, something we published in JCO a couple years ago, which is around expansion of the quality measurement framework for cancer. And it, it, it's been historically really thought about um, as structure, process, and outcomes, because it's the, it's the uh, you know, Avidas Donabedian was a genius and really the founder of healthcare quality improvement. But what's really interesting is that Dr. Donabedian was at the University of Michigan. He actually died of prostate cancer. This is publicly known information. And one of the last interviews he gave was about him sort of lamenting, if you will, about the quality of the pain control that he was receiving in his final months. He was hospitalized and he was being under-controlled from his perspective. Again, you can read about this in terms of his, his pain control and that his sort of final-ish words that were published were really about how this movement in healthcare quality has to continue to move forward. Because even for him, the founder of healthcare quality uh, in the United States at the University of Michigan, which is a fantastic organization, that he was experiencing some opportunities for pain control, particularly from the house staff, where there were some misperceptions about how to use uh, pain medicines in the right way. And so as we think about quality, right, the classic sort of structure, process outcomes, particularly health outcomes, has made sense for a long time. I and others propose, though, that maybe we need to think broader than that. And as we think broader than that, what it's really doing is it's embracing the complexity and the team-based nature of the care that we're living in in cancer care today. And so if you think about not only structure, process, and health outcomes, we have to also think about access, right? Because when we think about who, for example, is benefiting from breast cancer care in the United States today, I will tell you that stage for stage and matched for markers and tumor status, so you match kind of on all the you know, biologic perspectives, black women in the United States are 40% more likely to die of breast cancer than white women. That is an issue that is complex, but it involves an issue of access, it involves an issue of on treatment, um, or on guideline or pathway care, um, and, and many other things where the disparities actually don't necessarily start at the time of mammography, which nationally mammography rates are very similar for black women and white women in, in the country nationally. But moving forward from there is where we start to see the disparities, right? Time to biopsy, time to repeat scan, time to surgeon appointment, time to et cetera. And you guys know that better than anyone does that that's where that is. So in addition to access is resource use. And as we understand from like the triple aim of healthcare delivery is that we have to build a system that's sustainable. And so that means that thinking about the resources, which are finite, right, which are finite, um, that we have to think about how we intelligently use them and apply them to the people who need them the most. There's also a lot of a, a focus on experience, right? And not experience from the, um, you know, the jello on my tray didn't taste good in the cancer center, like not that, right? Because that's where, that's where oftentimes physicians get caught up on is the things that are not necessarily in our control as clinicians or as administrators. But it's really about asking the question, uh, for example, I sit on the NQF, um, palliative care and hospice panel, and uh, one of the measures that we've recently approved is around the concept of heard and understood. 
And so the concept of heard and understood is asking directly from a patient or caregiver, um, with your health care, do you feel heard and understood? Heard is really important, right? Because we know, for example, that on average, clinicians interrupt patients uh, in the first encounter when they sit down and they say, hey, Mrs. Jones, how are you doing today? Tell me what I can help you with or what's on your mind. We interrupt, we, I'm going to talk about me, interrupt people on an average of 11 seconds. So how in the world can we actually understand what's on someone's mind if we don't actually let them finish the sentence, right? It's really hard to get there. And so patients will tell you about that. In fact, you guys all know the most common reason for litigation that involves physicians has to do with communication more than it has to do with technical expertise, right? Because patients will give physicians generally grace uh, when it comes to maybe a, a decision that was 10 degrees off. But in terms of bad bedside manner, not listening, not feeling heard, and not feeling understood. Understood is about personhood, right? Understood is sees me for who I am. That is a deeper construct than it may seem like on the surface. Understood is when you talk to another human being and you walk away from that encounter, I could ask you, when you talked, did you feel heard and understood? And most of you will probably pause and you'll probably have a very definitive answer, right? You'll sort of say, yeah. And I think oftentimes that happens because we, when we're in a conversation, we, we oftentimes sort of listen to respond as opposed to listen to understand. And when clinicians listen to understand, you can, you can see it, you can feel it, that it's happening, and oftentimes it's reflected in a measure like heard and understood. So then we have to think about patient costs. And this is really important because we know from national data, including from some of my colleagues at Duke, um, that the, for advanced cancer, the financial toxicity rate, as measured by the percentage of people who declare bankruptcy or use up their entire life savings, right? And again, let's imagine you're a six-year-old woman uh, with colorectal cancer. You've had, right, 40 years or so in the workforce to build up assets, right, and uh, a nest egg and plans. And if I tell you there's a one in three chance that all of that money will disappear in the next one or two years in the vein, in the frame of we're making your life better by treating you, again, you can hold both things at the same time, that in fact we can help you live longer, but your quality of life may suffer a little bit too, at least from a financial perspective, that that's a problem if a third of people are declaring bankruptcy. And if the leading reason for personal bankruptcy declaration in the United States is healthcare costs, even with the Affordable Care Act, even with employer-based health insurance, even with plans, even with Medicaid expansion and it seems like every state except for mine, even with all those things in place, we still find these important barriers that exist. And so what monitoring out-of-pocket costs is really important for us. And lastly, population health, which is are we actually improving outcomes at scale in the populations that we are interested in at all? I took off the labels here of this graph because I wanted to make it very simple. So the top, the light gray is cancer incidence over the next 30 years. The dark gray is cancer mortality over the next 30 years. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Because what we're starting to do now is transition cancer for many of them, but not all, from you know sort of this acute illness that's time limited. Um, to one that's really, for many people, like with metastatic colorectal cancer, might be measured in four to five years. And I mentioned as a palliative care doc, right, like what is that transition that's happening? Remember, a hundred years ago in the United States, take COVID out of the equation for a second, a hundred years ago in the United States, why did people die? 
they died of acute viral or bacterial illnesses, right? I mean, it wasn't that long ago the United States had cholera outbreaks, right? It wasn't that long ago that the South had malaria, right? Like what we're talking about 100 years ago is not that long ago, actually. So we transition from serious illness being time measured in days, right? You get the Spanish flu, right? And then three days, right? Then we went to cancer in the 70s, 80s, and parts of 90s where, you know, for, for some things like triple negative breast cancer as an example, that survival for advanced disease was measured in months. And now we're getting to a point, right, where now we're starting to measure things in years, which is super fantastic. And yet at the same time, the bottom line here, the black one, is where the supportive care workforce exists, which is largely stable. And I published a few papers in, in Health Affairs and JAMA looking at the palliative care workforce specifically. And what we found is a complete uh, you know, stabilization or no growth of that workforce happening over time. And so what that means is we've got a lot of people with potential complexity related to their quality of life and suffering and financial toxicity and emotional issues and conflict that is oftentimes part of the cancer journey for many people. Uh, I can't tell you the number of times that I've taken care of a patient who is going through marital strife or relationship strife during the cancer journey. It's, it's something we talk about when I talk about their relationships with their caregivers. And, and yet you can see sort of how all this introduced stress can take a situation that was already maybe a little tough and make it a bit tougher. And then the other thing we have to acknowledge is the fourth aim uh, when the IHI said triple aim, which I think we've all acknowledged, which is that um, you cannot stand next to a waterfall and have this fantasy that you're not going to get just a little bit wet, right? And that's a brilliant colleague of mine explained burnout to me in that way by saying, we cannot actually read about, see, and be witness to others' distress, quite a bit of it sometimes, and think that we're going to go home and none of it's going to stick to us in some way. And the data bears that out. So this is from Tate Shanafelt, who uh, was my mentor at Mayo, now at Stanford, and the international expert in this space, and just a brilliant guy. And Tate, you know, really has done these large studies looking at the healthcare workforce. And the point is, whether you, you read the, the bottom or not, the point is, no one is immune to this, right? Because in Always, all of us in this room are witnessing someone else's distress. We're reading about it, we're seeing it, we're experiencing it firsthand, helping them with it. Whatever our roles are, we know that it exists. And what happens is that we're starting to see now that not only is burnout a common issue, in fact, it's ever, it's, it, I think, impossible to find data for healthcare professionals where the burnout rate is under one third. Like, I haven't seen it yet. And yet, if you take people with similar professional backgrounds or degrees, right? If you look at the burnout rate in, in lawyers or accounts as an example who may have the similar level of education that, that any of you do, the burnout rate is not that high, right? There is something particular about healthcare. I believe it is because we're witnessing complexity and uncertainty and distress and we're seeing it. It's a daily thing and that we have to build strategies to be able to, uh, to work our way through it. And people ask me this all the time, again, as a palliative care doc and as an oncologist, like how does one do that? And you have to be very deliberate about this. It doesn't happen accidentally. And so for me and my family, it's time at the beach. For me and my family, it's time away from a laptop. You have to actually create boundaries and that doesn't happen accidentally. Because the reality is, is that work-life balance barriers 
are generally not put in place by your employer, no offense. But that is not really oftentimes their role. And with all due respect to gift certificates to yoga sessions, that's not really the solution. And I'm just gonna say that as a published researcher in this space is that I've not seen that to be the case. And if we think about the 80-20 rule, I think the AMA has said this as well, and I agree with them, that really as we think about burnout resilience, 80% are really systems factors, right? It's the fact that like I'm printing out you know, things yesterday and the printer in the room I'm in doesn't work and so I have to walk across, you know, and I'm, you know, blah, blah, and the pharmacy's not accepting, you know, there are process-oriented issues. And so if we start to see burnout and resilience as actually a quality improvement problem, then you can start to wrap your arms around it, right? And um, with my, my great colleague, Steve Power, he and I at Duke, um, uh, many of you may know Steve, um, really worked on burnout resilience and team member turnover by looking at it as a quality improvement issue, right? Actually doing root cause analyses and actually creating aim statements that became goals, not only goals for the organization, but goals for our leadership. And because we have very progressive leadership, made that part of their individual leadership goals is to be accountable to those things because they and us have agency around those changes. Let me also talk about social determinants of health or social drivers of health as well. As I mentioned, that 80-20 rule I think really holds true for cancer care also because the point is, um, I mentioned uh, that um, you know, we oversee the, the Hope Lodge program at, at ACS and my, my team, my very talented team oversees that work. But you know, most of us, regardless of the amount of privilege that we have, are probably a $10,000 hospital bill away from being really stressed. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't care what your 401k looks like. The point is no one's actually really immune to being in a situation where social determinants are actually really help, important for you. So for my wife and I, for example, if one of us got a cancer diagnosis, who's gonna watch our 10 and five year old becomes the leading thing on the top of our mind? Right? Like who's going to help us? And we don't live close to family. So who's going to, how are we going to get that help? Where does that come into play? How do we make that logistics work? Right? And we're very privileged uh, as a family, no doubt about it. But the point is that social determinants do not imply only under-resourced or differently resourced people. The point is the social determinants exist regardless of what your bank account statement says, regardless of what you look like or where you live. The point is these barriers are persistent and pervasive across the cancer continuum. And as we think about them, this is just one conceptual framework that we put forward at ACS around this is, these are compelling problems that are multi-sector. And if you look at it, you're kind of like, well, yeah, I don't know. What, how does FMLA work? How would one stop uh, a job? I had a patient who, um, was a, he worked for a, a, a beverage distribution com company and he um, was the person who refilled the vending machines. That was his job. Really nice guy with melanoma. And you know, what he said is, hey, Dr. Kamal, they're trying to replace me while I'm getting chemotherapy and away from work. They're trying to find my replacement and I don't feel like that's right. And let me, let me be clear, like I, I, I'm not an attorney, but I know some. And I think sometimes knowing some is really helpful. And you know, at, at Duke, we created a medical legal program through, through the brilliance of some other leaders. And the idea was that in situations like this, that we can at least lean in. And as a physician, I think it is my obligation when I hear things like that to be able to provide some problem-solving solutions 
being very clear, though, that I'm not the person that's going to solve that problem. And if it is a solvable problem, um, I can connect them to the right resources. So in that situation, we did. And it's interesting how much a strongly worded letter from uh, a lawyer group can do in a situation like that. Because uh, you may not be talking about law, but you may be talking about sort of ethics and fairness and so on. And that's, I think, what we can be as social justice champions. I mean, in that moment, I was arguing, I was advocating for my patient in a social justice way because I said lack of employment and replacement because you are getting life-saving care and because we are being as judicious as we can to make things that are oral and to reduce you know, the amount of time away from work, we're doing the best that we can, but I'm trying to save this guy's life, and in that, he should not be able to be afraid of losing his livelihood, right? And that was really what was at stake. And so as we think about all these issues, it's important that we embrace, right? The caregivers, uh, paper in JCO five, six years ago demonstrated that having an identified family caregiver was one of the most, if not the most, predictive factor of outcomes, again, when matched stage for stage. We understand that social isolation and loneliness is an increasing problem, not only in the United States in general, um, but also in cancer care as well. There's some data uh, that maybe 50 to 60% of cancer patients face social isolation uh, or loneliness, which is, uh, it's troubling to me because I think the prevailing myth is actually quite the opposite, right? And when I, when I talk about this with other groups, they're like, well, but, but, but everyone rallies. Everyone rallies when people get diagnosed with cancer. And I said, sure. Remember, again, if our vision of cancer is that thing that lasts for six months, and then you reach resolution, then yes, a rally for six months is exactly what is needed. But if someone's gonna live for five or 10 years with cancer, then the six month rally is helpful for the six months, but what happens for the other four and a half years? And so this concept, um, in fact, I read about it from someone else, the, the quote they used was about um, cancer ghosting, right? And it's funny because my 10-year-old my daughter uses that term a lot now, so I've had to become hip to this concept of being ghosted. She's like, Dad, why are you ghosting me? It's like, what? What does that mean? Okay, now I know what it means, right? So what it means, right, is that someone kind of like, um, it's the Homer Simpson, like, backs into the hedge kind of thing. So it's that, but for cancer, right? And so let's think about why that might occur. I think it's really interesting and a really uh, ripe area for research is why would people pull back at a time. Well, let me tell you that something, you know, when many people don't want to identify themselves as the cancer patient first and foremost for that four and a half, five, ten years, whatever that is, right? But what we find, even very well-meaning uh, patients of mine are, 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 are sort of saying to me, like, how do I support someone else? Or colleagues ask me, how do I support someone else? Like, I don't know, maybe, maybe not talk about the cancer part as the first and only thing when you pick up the phone or text someone about something, right? Because that can be can be a lot, right, for both parties at stake. And people are like, well, what do I say? What do I do? Gosh, it's really exhausting to only talk about cancer. And I was like, why do you think this person only wants you to call them and talk about cancer, right? So there's these opportunities to lean in. But I also think that a lot of the language we have used has, has gotten us to this place a little bit too, right? So when we use um, the concept of like war-based language, for some patients that's helpful, no doubt about it. But I've run into patients regularly where war-based language is not the way they want to communicate their journey through the experience. That war-based language, like 
you're a fighter. Because for some people, the, the challenge with that is, is what happens when the cancer progresses despite the person being a fighter? What is, does that change who they are? Are they not a fighter? Are they a loser in the fight? Like you start to go down this language pathway that I don't think is appropriate, nor would I ever use that with a patient. And so I've had patients say to me, hey, Dr. Kamal, can we, can we frame this in a different way? And absolutely. And so I think that as we think about that, the social isolation can start to bubble up because if things go a little bit differently than we plan, right, then that can seem like a disappointment to everyone, not only the person experiencing it, but everyone else in the community of that person. And it can start to make reaching out a little difficult as well. You can imagine how that might work. So as we think about housing insecurity, food as medicine, and all these other things, right, you know, if you look, for example, the colorectal cancer incidence increases for people who are younger, it's not accidental that it's mapping with um, uh, BMI changes as well in, in my generation of folks, right? And so we know that there are clear links between lifestyle and cancer incidence, and we're seeing those things happen together. This is why things like food as medicine for cancer prevention are going to increasingly become important. And, and of course, health equity underlies all the things that we do. I think for all of us in the room, that's true. Certainly at the American Cancer Society, it is as well. And we think about partnerships, people, and places, and we think about equity not just for people who um, look or pray or live differently, but for any person who has a lived experience to appreciate that that lived experience is true to their self and part of their personhood and something we should appreciate and understand and wrap cancer care around is really important. And I think that reflects a position that is really more humble and curious because I think curiosity is ultimately the best communication skill that we have. And the best thing that invites curiosity is Silence. Now the problem with silence is it makes everyone uncomfortable. Because in that, I had to count in five seconds because I can't not talk. So I have to like make myself be silent so you understand. So I count to five seconds to make myself make the point to myself too that I wasn't having a TIA or a stroke, just to be clear. Like functionally I am intact for the most part, I think. And that really silence welcomes more. Right? And I think as the best skill as we're trying to appreciate the person that we're talking to, not just in a healthcare context, right, but in a human-to-human -human context, that when we are having a conversation, silence is actually really great. And let me, let me give you an example. A person says to me, Dr. Kamal, it really sucks that I'm 30 and I have breast cancer. And I have been praying for a miracle for this to go away. And I'm waiting for that miracle. It's not an uncommon thing that gets told to me, particularly because we have psychological safety in our clinic. And so I hear that. The exact wrong answer is to pretend as if you have definitively something to say. I don't have definitively something to say. Because ultimately what the person is sharing with me is a personhood issue, right? Their, their, their sort of spirituality is sort of out up front. And they're sharing that with me in terms of that and, and the way they see that for, for them. And there's not an answer. And so as I remain silent but supportive, right, eye contact, nodding my head, listening very attentively, as I am silent, they will, mo most people will offer more. 
right? Because the skill here is that the discomfort in silence, you just have to have less discomfort than the other person. That's the problem, right? So that's the problem. So that's why I count, okay? But if you do, you invite people to fill the space, and what they will generally do is give you more detail, more context, more to work on. Uh, I'll give you the situation. I was in clinic with a resident, a very well-meaning resident, who um, I said, well, you lead the conversation, and I'll, you know, you know, I'll be the attending, and I'll, I'll listen in, and I'll jump in when it's time. And so the patient says, um, patient had, I think, Lynch syndrome, and so it's a P53 mutation thing. And so um, the patient said, um, why is this happening to me? Right, we just had sort of broken some bad news. Why is this happening to me? And I, I saw the resident at the corner of my eye, and I was like, oh no, I think I know how this is gonna go. And the resident started in with a small chalk talk on P53 mutations and tumor suppressor genes. Now, we all know, because we are all learned people, that that is not the question being asked. The question is not a scientific one in nature, it's an existential one in nature almost 100% of the time. Now, some people do wanna understand P53 mutations, and for them, that explanation will work. But I jumped in, very tactfully, and I said, yes, we hear you, and that must be really frustrating. And so responding to emotion is key in a moment like that, right, is that we are seeing the person for who they are, which is not a person who bears a germline mutation that has led to this cancer. We see this as a person who's not dissimilar to any of us, right, who's going through experience that anyone else could go through and who's just looking for support in that moment. Right? And as we see that, that becomes the kinder, gentler version of cancer care, of team-based cancer care that's needed. And in that moment, right, teams are important because I might be, uh, you, know, uh, you know, convinced or I might, in, in a not great moment, jump in and give some P53 expression, uh, explanation as well. And when I have other really great colleagues around me, we make sure that doesn't happen. The number 49 is really important because I did a little bit of uh, back of the envelope math here. So in science, we publish, we meaning the scientific community, publishes 1.8 million journal articles per year. If you said that of the 1.8 million journal articles that 1% were salient to oncology professionals, and you divide that by 365, you get to 49 articles per day that you would have to read to keep up with the science. And what I'm highlighting is that it is really hard to deliver cancer care in 2023. I started by saying that the innovation is amazing, and yet at the same time, there's so much to appreciate and understand about what's happening, not a minimum of which is the scientific changes that are occurring as well. And what we're starting to see here is right this movement from data to wisdom. Like how do we get from 49 articles to the concept of not just information and knowledge, but wisdom. And fundamentally, when people come to see us as clinicians in a cancer center, they want to understand the wisdom that's there. But there's so many layers to get from the data to the wisdom itself. And let me end here by talking about teams. A great book that I've been reading recently, which is a book that's been around for 20 years, is called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. It's a great read because it's very narrative. It actually talks about, that's the title, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And it talks about a team, a company, where a new CEO has come into place and she is meeting with some of the existing leaders and they're sort of storming and forming and norming this team. The book Five Dysfunctions of a Team is such a great one. It was recommended to be my, uh, my executive coach. 
it talks through in a very narrative way what happens when teams don't work well together and what are the parts of that. So one is, I'm gonna start at the bottom because it's like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So absence of vulnerable trust. Trust is really important, particularly if people are willing to be vulnerable. Say things like, I don't know, or I'm not sure, or man, I didn't do that well, or gosh, I could have done that better, right? Is that you can trust that others around you are being supportive and that you can be vulnerable at the same time. That is key. In fact, teams don't work unless you can get to an area of vulnerability. And if you think about like a tumor, uh, tumor review group, right? that you have to be able to in a safe space where the radiologist can sort of say, you know what, I'm just not sure. It could be ground glass, it could be a mat, I just, I don't know, let's try to put a needle in it, I just can't tell, right? Or for a surgeon to say, you know, I, I just don't, you know, I just don't know. Oncologists say, yeah, I don't know if the trial really applies to this person. That's the key ingredient. Full stop. If you don't have that, do not pass go, do not collect $200. There's no reason to try to form a team if you can't get there. Fear of conflict is next, which means that you're not willing to have honest conversations. And conflict is different than angst or anxiety. Conflict is true disagreement where you're not being disagreeable, right? So Michelle Obama talks about that, being dis having disagreements without being disagreeable, right? How do you get to a place where you understand that different perspectives is actually what you're trying to get to? Lack of commitment, particularly to uh, the organization and its goals, avoidance of accountability, and inattention to team results, particularly where people are interested in their own uh, movement forward, but not necessarily that the team has a collective we. Um, let me talk about conflict very quickly here because I'm short on time. Conflict is where people are missing the underlying motivations. What people talk about is the overlying issue Right? But the underlying thing is the motivation. And oftentimes what really good conflict negotiators do is they ask the question to the other person, what are you worried about? It's a very quick way to get there. What are you worried about? Not in a like snarky way, right? Like, hey, what are you worried about? Sorry, I was giving that a little direct. Hey, what are you worried about, right? What am I missing that you might be worried about? Because as humans, we tend to operate from a position of worry. We tend to make decisions more because we're worried, right? It's like premature closure. It's like um, if you told me I had like, you know, there are seven restaurants in the hotel and I could eat from any one of them, like that choice can paralyze people because I don't want to make the wrong one and close the wrong door, right? And so that that's what happens. So when we're in conflict, for example, with a patient that I had, what I asked is, what, you know, Mrs. Jones, just tell, what are you worried about? What am I missing here? And she goes, you know what? I'm worried that, right, I'm gonna lose my job through the cancer journey. That's what this is about. Or I'm worried that I'm not getting all the best care that by not offering this clinical trial to me, you're treating me differently than other people because of my accent or where I come from or the town I live in or what I look like or where I work or any number of things. Now, it's hard to sometimes get to that level of directness, but fundamentally, it's our job, I think, to understand where that worry comes from when we're doing conflict resolution. Just really quickly on availability versus accessibility, I think this is the pivot we're making in cancer care. We did a study and we published it in JOP about NCI-designated comprehensive cancer centers and we called them and we said like, what services do you have? And my students did this, uh, did this research and what they found is that um, cancer centers said we don't have a bunch of things that we know is actually true. And what that means is that things are available but they're not accessible and I think in cancer care, innovations, treatments, et cetera, is where we're moving towards. And then lastly, I'm just gonna say very quickly, we're developing a peer-to-peer -peer navigation program at, at, at ACS where we're gonna to try to you know, use teams that are bigger in scope. 
And that means people in the community as being team members of the healthcare system. That's like lay navigation, peer navigation, um, community health workers, et cetera, to think about the team in a broader way, because I think we have to, because of all the burnout and the, comp you know, the complexities of the workforce, growing it has to be done in more creative ways, and that's what we're doing. So I will stop there and just say thank you. It's been wonderful being with all of you and learning from you. Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag House of Surgery. You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at facs.org.